Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome to uh, California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number two, and uh, probably show two of somewhere in the neighborhood of about 32 shows that we're going to be doing uh, for this class. The last time that we met during that show, what I basically did is discuss the fact that we had a course orientation that day, which is a normal part of the process that we go through and whenever we do any kind of distance education. I also mentioned to you, I believe, that as we do this show, one of the things that I'm going to do, try to do very hard is to make sure I don't date stamp or, or uh, talk about it that it's Tuesday or Thursday or some other day. And the reason why is because we're going to be reutilizing these shows and moving this class in the future to online and being able so that students will have all the shows available for them when they initially take the class. Uh, one of the things that we did during show one, as we normally do, is we go through all of the, if you will, all of the different topical areas that we're going to be discussing during the course, and I believe we took care of that. Uh, what I wanted to do is mention to you a couple, if you will, housekeeping things or uh, a little bit about where we are with the show right now. This, uh, we did the first show. What we did do then, we uh, encoded the show, which means essentially we took the video and made it so that it could work on the Internet. After we completed that, we went ahead and transferred that up to a, if you will, a website or a server that handles that. And then I went ahead and sent out an email to everybody that I had that, or that we had done that and that the first show was available for you to uh, view on the uh, Blackboard website. So I kind of want to emphasize that if you at this point in time have not or in the future do not receive email or uh, some kind of contact from us, it just means that you have not updated your email address in the Blackboard system. So that becomes very, very important. That's something I stress during the course orientation and also something that applies to any of the online classes that we teach. We always want to stress that you need to make sure you have your current email address. A couple things that I want to show you uh, that's in Blackboard that I did so that you're kind of familiar with what's going on. I'm going to have Bob is going to move over here in a minute to what we commonly refer to as our plasma screen. Uh, we call it, I call it a plasma screen. We used to call it old Betsy. Uh, that's when we had an older computer sitting here. And what I want to do is just show you kind of what I had mentioned when I put the announcement out and also what the email should look like. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and slide down here. And basically, this was, I do two things. I always try to do two things, and Bob's going to bring it up here on the uh, plasma screen. Uh, first of all, whenever I do something, I always attempt to set up an announcement. The concept is, is that you may go to the website, maybe you haven't been checking your email or whatever, and so I'll put an announcement up there. And as you can see from this announcement, I said, Hi, everybody. We have completed encoding and uploading the first class show for Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. You can now view the show online by going to your class Blackboard website and selecting the blue button titled TV Shows, which is located right here. That's the button that we're talking about. After I sent that email out, I, what's happening now with the new system is that I actually get a report back, and it'll tell me who has a valid email address and received it and who didn't. And, of course, the first class out, I get a whole list of people I didn't receive the email, meaning that they have not updated their email address in Blackboard. So I sent a, put a posting up so that in case somebody went to the website, they'd see this posting. And I said, 
I just sent out an email announcing that the first show was ready for viewing. I received a message back that identified many students by name that still need to update their email address. Please remember to do this right away. And so I'm going to take a minute right now in this show and hopefully show you one more time how we do this. When you first log on, there's a page over here called the Welcome page. That's what you'll initially see. And right down here under Personal Information, located right here, you click on there and you go to, hopefully this will work, you go to Edit Personal Information. And what you're looking for is you want your current email address in there. Current. Now let me mention what that happens to be. This is the place where you normally would receive email. Now, if you normally receive, like for example, one of the things that I do is because I do a lot of correspondence with my students, anytime I give out my email address, I give the email for here on the campus. Because what I don't want to do is have to log on and check one email account one place and one email account another place. I've been through that many years ago uh, where I was teaching part-time and I had to check my part-time email, my personal email, my campus email. It drove me nuts. So what I basically did is I said, for now on, I'm just going to use my work email address, and that's it. So the point is, is please make sure you put the email where you normally log on and check stuff. That's what you really want. And also, if you've done this in previous classes, please make sure that you check and make sure it's current. And the reason why is that I've had students that will turn around and say, oh, it worked last semester, and maybe they worked for the state of California or something, and they found out, oh, I forgot to tell you, I got promoted from one department to the other, and my address changed. So you want to make sure it's always current. Very, very important, because I'm going to be sending you a lot of stuff. As I do these things, I would say that you should, especially in this class, should be expecting to get an email from me probably as a minimum at least twice a week, as a bare minimum, for no other reason for me to just let you know that I posted the, uh, the, uh, the video for the class. Now, the next thing I want to do is I'm going to go back into the real estate class, uh, your real estate class, Real Estate 300. I'm going to have to take a minute here and find it, uh, where it is in the whole list of stuff that I have. And I'm going to go in here and I'm going to show you where that video is for this first class that we recorded. So visualize you're sitting at home in front of your computer. You're going to need a high-speed connection to do this, like a, a DSL or a cable modem. It's maybe 2 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock in the morning. It doesn't make any difference because it'll work any time, hopefully. You click on TV shows. And one thing I wanted to point out to you is I did put a link in here to say that you do need the Microsoft uh, Windows Media Player which you may or may not have. If you don't have it, you click this link here. It will take you out to the Microsoft website where you can find the player, which is free. It's just like Flash players, Real Media players, QuickTime players. It's free. You can download it. And what this will normally do, we'll go in and be able to recognize which operating system you have, like do you have Windows 2000 or Windows XP, and it will download the correct media play for that. Next thing that I wanted to mention, I'm going to go back to TV shows now, is I'm going to play the first show, and hopefully this will work. And uh, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to go ahead and open it up or attempt to open it up here in its own player so I can show you what it kind of looks like. Okay, let me see if I can sort of reshape this thing a little bit. 
Real Estate 310. Okay. Uh, today we had an orientation. So now Bob will bring me and the we had one screen up next to each other. We went from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock in the morning. That was for our students that were here during the day. This is me uh, talking. That was more convenient That's Pat. For them to, to attend that during okay. the day. You then saw how quickly that happened. From uh, so you could be watching. When we this did the show, orientation, what we did is we at had, home. We did an okay. orientation. And this show that I'm doing now will be doing, available. Uh, real Estate 300, you know, real probably uh, probably either tomorrow or Monday or so. And I'll send you an email out. Come in, see, go listen to what this guy says for another one. Instead of going home and coming back, we did all at the same time. Uh, during that class, what we did is we talked about a lot of the technology that we use. We talked about Blackboard. Uh, one of the systems that we utilize to deliver the content, in other words, your course outlines, your, uh, your uh, study guides, all that kind of stuff to keep you apprised of what's going on. Like okay, uh, also remember that when you open pay, this up, you know, that you can also take and resize this if you need to. Over how to do See that. if I can do this. Another thing that so we you can make it smaller, bigger, or whatever. Was the fact okay. that... Uh, I would recommend that, that you'd run it usually uh, at about that size or a little bit larger is because the file's show. been compressed. It'll get a little bit blurry as you, if you tried to run a students full screen. Students so I'm going to stop this, really. and I'm going to close out of it. And I think you kind of get the point that we now have that available, that you do need to check your email, and it will always be there. By the way, uh, if you're on campus, we have computers on campus. You can watch it on the campus. The only thing that I would recommend is that within the labs, they normally will have a couple, and when I say a couple, I mean maybe one or two headsets. And they're not going to turn the speakers on if, because if you could imagine, you know, you're, you know, you've got if you had five or six students listening at the same time with the speakers, nobody could hear anything. So what you may want to do if you're going to come to the campus is to bring a headset with you. You can buy those little computer headsets that you can wear. Uh, that will probably run you a few dollars that you can buy depending upon what you would like in any one of the. Um, shows like Best or, or Fry's or whatever, okay? And they're also good, the same kind of a headset you'd use for a media player. So if you have one of those iPods that you run around and dance at the same time, you can use those also. So what I want to do is I kind of want to finish up with this, and I'm done with this part of it, and I'm going to close this window. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to talk about what's in the first part of uh, the course outline, or if you will, the first chapter. What we're going to do today is we're going to talk about in depth the uh, chapter one. I'm probably going to go on and pr probably spend quite a bit of time in this chapter. I may very well have to f continue on with this chapter the next time. That's usually in the beginning. We're kind of trying to play catch up because of the course orientation and all the logistics. Anyway, this first chapter talks about an introduction to real estate. And I'm going to start out with some really basic stuff, you know, just introduction to real estate. One of the things that they emphasize in the beginning is that the department that handles real estate in, within California is called the California Department of Real Estate. Probably most states in the United States have some form of a department of real estate that controls the licensing of people that buy, or that sell, or represent people to sell properties. So, in other words, the Department of Real Estate is the department that you would actually go to, to uh, and submit your application to take uh, to get your real estate license. They would be the people that would administer the exam. They would be people that would uh, that would. Uh, you know, if, some, if, if you had a license, if there was a complaint and you had done something that was wrong, they would be the people that would call you in and have a hearing and possibly take your license away. So it's the Department of Real Estate that does that. 
in future classes later on, especially when we get in talking about licensing and stuff, I'll show you their website, how their website works and how it functions and how you can find it. Everything you ever needed to know about getting a license on their website. Uh, next thing that they talk about here is the high cost of real estate within California. Uh, you know, a lot of us live in California because it's a nice place to live. All you really have to do is go to other parts of the United States. I'm originally from New York. You know, it's hot in the summertime. It's humid. You freeze to death in the wintertime. Uh, it's, it's very expensive to live back there. California has really nice weather. It has, uh, it's a very stable, very good economy out here, and that's the reason why people want to live in California. Uh, the real estate that's in California is fairly expensive when compared to other states. For example, later on in the course, I'll do something where I will show you property that's in, Ca in Sacramento. I'll maybe have you pick out something like a house that, or a, house, a specific house, or we'll try to find houses in areas that might be like, say, $175,000, $200,000 in the Sacramento area. And you're all going to go, oh, you can't find anything like that. And then I'll take you to other states like Oklahoma, Texas, and I'll show you properties down there where for $175,000, $200,000, you could buy a three- or four-bedroom house, 2,500 to 3,000 square feet, three-car garage, brand new, on a, on a third of an acre. Okay, So you'll get in a perspective that California real estate is more expensive than other areas. Okay, So that's important that we know that. The next thing, uh, and I'm just going to go page by page just to get you guys kind of used to this. This is the uh, California Department of Real Estate website that they talk about in your book. One of the things that I kind of want to emphasize, and when I get to that point, uh, first of all, this is their website, www.dre, which means Department of Real Estate, .ca, which is for California.gov because it's a government organization. This is talking about uh, this page right here, which we'll go into detail later on, is their e-licensing. Uh, one of the things that I think uh, all California uh, departments attempt to do is to try to do as much business over the internet that they possibly can. And the reason why they do that is because if you really think about it, anytime they can have people do things electronically instead of having people send paper in, because every time you send paper in, somebody has to be there and be employed to open the envelope, file it, track it down, they have to, you know, build the building to store the stuff, okay? If they can do it electronically, then they save all that time and effort. And as an example, if you just take something like uh, uh, the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles, if you want to, you can register your car online. You get ready to do your smog check. You do that online. The garage does the smog check, submits the results. You pay your fees online. Everything is done online. Therefore, you don't have to stand in line at the Department of Motor Vehicles. They don't have to worry about opening up packages or anything else. So it saves the whole state money. Same thing with the Department of Real Estate. When you go and you're going to apply for a real estate license, you can actually set up, like you did here at school, an account where you have a username and a password. It'll ask you some personal information. When you get all done with it, you'll have an account. You can log on, register to take exams, find out if you passed the exam, do all that online. Okay, so kind of we'll stress that later on. Um, they talk about here that real estate is a profitable profession. That is a true statement, but I, I'm here to tell you that the people uh, that are making a lot of money selling real estate 
have certain characteristics. Sometimes they may not appear to be the most, you know, sharpest tool in the shed or the smartest person. But you'll find out that characteristically those people that do well in real estate usually have certain things. First of all, they're hard workers, very, very hard workers. They're usually very well organized. They have really good people skills. They know how to work with people really, really well. And they are real, very good usually at building a team of people to work with. In other words, they usually have people that are escrow officers, title officers, appraisers that they really work well with. And they're very knowledgeable. And uh, those people really do well. So if you're the kind that is a good self-starter, works hard, doesn't mind putting in hours, doesn't mind building a clientele, you know, and when I say building a clientele in the real estate business, the point you want to get to, you want to get to the point where somebody calls you up four years later because of your reputation and says, hi, John, I would like to have you come out. I heard that you did a really good job selling my friend's house, Jimmy Smith. I'd like to have you come out. Uh, I have a lot of confidence in what, what Jimmy says. I'd like to have you come out and list my house. Would you mind doing that? <laughs> you know. And the reason why is because you've established a reputation of really doing high-quality work. You're trustworthy, and you really deliver what you say. Okay, those are the people that really end up being successful in real estate. And that just takes hard work to do that. Nothing else. There's no magic. There's no hocus pocus. It's just hard work. The commission on real estate, as it says down the bottom here, typically on the sale of a home, is based on a percentage of the sales price of the home, typically and customarily, customarily, not written in law, in, here in the Sacramento area or in Northern California area, is 6% of the sales price. So if I take something, I'll use some numbers that I can do in my head fairly simply. If you had a piece of property that you were going to sell for $100,000, 6% of that would be $6,000. Now, the only way that you would earn that entire $6,000 as commission is that if you were the broker, you listed the property for sale, and you sold it. On the other hand, typically, in most cases, agents usually list the property for sale, and they may not have a buyer, but they put it in the multiple listing service and somebody else sells it. Typically, that 6% commission or $6,000 would be split between two brokerages. It's split 50-50. So if you work for Remax, you would get, your broker, brokerage would get $3,000. And if the other agent worked for Century 21, their brokerage would get $3,000. And then you would split what you would earn would be based on your employment contract with the uh, broker, okay? So that's how that basically works. Uh, and there are people that sell lots and lots of real estate. The next thing that they talk about in here is just more or less the historical influence of, you know, what kind of was happening within California. Uh, if you go back historically, basically what we talk about is that prior to the Spaniards or the Mexi uh, Mexicans, what we did is the Indians owned California. The first large country to come in here was Spain. Typically what Spain did is, you know, the king of Spain would turn around and want to have somebody over here that would, you know, be running ranches and taking care of the land. What the king would do is they would grant what they call Spanish land grants and say, you know what, if you do this, I'm going to give you this land or I'm going to grant you this land. Where does that come into the fact of real estate today is because sometimes when we go back and we chain the title back, we find out that it came from a Spanish land grant, okay? 
Same thing where we had a Mexico, we had Mexico controlling this, so there was Mexican land grants. Uh, also, with, once the federal government or the United States came in, we had what we call land patents or land grants, federal land grants. Okay, in other words, where somebody was granted property. Uh, after the Mexican-American War, what ended up happening is that California became a state. And when California became a state, which I believe is in 1848, what ended up happening, that one of the first things that they had to kind of work out is some kind of a public recording or public place that they could record who owned the land. And so after it became a state down in, I believe it was in Monterey, there was quite a bit of time where they had a land commission that people would come in front of them with documents to say, I got my land from Spain or I got my land from Mexico and here's my proof of ownership. And they went through and took a look at that and to see whether or not those people actually owned the land. So started a public recording system, okay, which we still use to this day. In other words, whenever we transfer property from one person to the other, typically we the last event that we do before we actually finish the transfer is we actually have somebody called a title company that will go down and actually record those documents at the county recorder's office where the property is located. And they'll record things like grant deeds, deeds of trust. Uh, they'll record maps, subdivision maps. All that stuff are recorded at the public office, including things such as uh, mechanics liens, uh, IRS liens, whatever it happens to be, is recorded there at the county recorder's office. Okay, so um, the next thing that they talk about in here is to be aware of the fact that when we talk about real estate, we're talking about we really have what's commonly referred to as a bundle of rights that we have. That's what we're really acquiring as a bundle of rights, what we can do with that property. At one time, many, many years ago in England, what, in, like in England, what ended up happening is that people, for example, would have an estate, you know, uh, either the king would have property or one of his subjects would have property, and then what they would do is, you know, uh, they would have people that would work the, the property, and they typically didn't own it as, a, as, as an estate that they could leave to somebody. They actually had a life estate. They would farm on it, work on it, and then when they died, it would go back to the king or it would go back to whoever owned the land. And uh, here, what we're talking about in our case, the basic right that we would have is something called uh, our ownership initially, a full ownership, is something called fee simple absolute, which means that we own everything. We own the property all the way from the center of the earth to outer space, okay, initially. You may go home and find out when you read your deed that's not all true. Okay, there's some other parts of the property that somebody owns, but we'll talk about that. But basically what they're talking about under this bundle of rights is that you should have the right to possess the property, occupy it, rent it, keep it, leave it to somebody else if you will. You can enjoy the property. You can control it. And then when you leave, you can sell it, dispose of it, whatever. Okay, that's what we talk about this bundle of rights. Okay. Now, just going on uh, from there, on this page here, they show you just that little diagram where they say land is it's a, it's a consideration that you own all the way from, if you will, from the center of the earth all the way to outer space. That's what you own. When you go home, though, you're going to find out in some cases that that's not true. For example... When some people sell their property many, many years ago, they said, you know what, in California, there's a good possibility that what's underneath that property happens to be oil or gold or silver or some kind of very valuable mineral. 
So consequently, I will sell the property for myself to somebody else, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to maintain the mineral rights from the surface, from 500 feet below the surface down to the center of the earth. And when you read your deed, when you go home, you're going to maybe find out that you, you own the first 500 feet, but the rest of it is owned by somebody else. Concept here is, is that if you have oil or the other kind of mineral underneath the land, somebody can come in and come in at an angle and drill under the land and be able to, because they have that right, and take the oil out and the minerals or whatever. And uh, that's, that's something that maybe oil companies w would be doing. You go down, like in the Los Angeles area, you see these oil wells out there pumping away, dra you know, getting oil out from underneath the ground. What they do is they're going down, but that well may be going at an angle, going underneath some properties in order to get that oil. Okay? Usually what they do when they have mineral rights is they have the right to maybe the, the minerals that are under the ground, but they don't have right to surface. They can't get in from the surface. They have to go someplace else to get underneath. Conversely, when we talk about airspace, if you go back to some of the larger, older cities like in New York, you're going to find out you take a look at a building and the rights or the ownership, while it may look like one building, is actually segmented, several different ownerships. You may find out, for example, that underneath the building there might be some kind of sewer pipes, water pipes, there might be a train, something else that's running underneath, okay, some sort of an easement. You get on the first floor and find out that maybe some, some company such as Macy's or somebody owns the first few floors where they have a department store or that they lease the space. You may find out as you go up the building that there might be some condominiums that are owned by somebody else, all in this structure, you know, personal residences. And then when you get up on the roof, you may find out that there's some antennas up there in which somebody has the right to those antennas to do things like cellular, you know, cellular signals, satellite dishes or whatever all within that one structure. So you can have a lot of different rights. Okay. Going on from there, uh, they talk about a couple other rights that you may have. We already talked about the fact of mineral rights. As they mentioned here, generally all that is beneath the surface of the earth belongs to the owner as real property. Mineral rights are the rights to on-mine minerals, soils such as gold, silver, borax, for the real property. That's what we mean by mineral rights. Okay. Then they talk about a couple other rights in here. Number one, they talk about something called a riparian right. Now, these rights have to do with where you have an expectation that when you own some property, that you have the use of certain kinds of things, such as waterways. For example, they say the riparian right is the right of the landowner to reasonable use of moving free-flowing water on or under the adjacent ground, okay? So basically, you may have where you have a river that's running next to your property and you have the right to have access to that river. Or maybe the water is running underneath your land and that's how you get water out of the ground. You have the right to do that. And it's an expectation that you have the right to have access to that. Another kind of right, and I can never pronounce these very uh, carefully, is called lit, I'll just say L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L. Litatorial, lit, I can never pronounce it. Anyway, what this is is that the landowner has a reasonable usage of non-flowing body of water. We mean like a lake. So, for example, I may have a lake that sits out in front of me. I may very well have my house on the lake. There's an expectation that I not only have ownership of the land that I sit on, the house, 
but I also have a certain degree of ownership with, into the lake. For example, my legal description may say that I, where I legally describe and, and talk about where the property is located, but also say that I have access to the first 100 to 200 feet of the water in the lake. The concept is, is that I can use and enjoy that. When I grew up in New York, there was a uh, lake in, on Long Island called Lake Ronkonkoma. What happened is there were houses on one side of the street, then there was a street, and then there was a lake. And when you looked at your legal description, it, it, you not only owned the house, but you had access to the lake and usually specifically so many feet within the lake, okay, an expectation that you're buying it and you can use it. So that's something else. Um, then they talk about some other things such as uh, percolating water refers to water that's uh, under the ground, but it doesn't necessarily follow a channel. It sort of comes up, percolates like coffee. Okay, so those are certain things that we want to make sure that uh, that we're aware of. That uh, these are just what you would go with or own in addition to the land itself. Okay. When we talk about improvements to the land, typically whenever we go out to buy a how, a piece of property, we're buying the land and the improvements. What we mean by improvements, we mean things like a house a fence, a garage, uh, a gazebo, uh, things like that. We're talking about the land and its improvements. So, And what's really important about that is that, for example, if I go out and I want to put a fence up around my house or between my house and the next house, when I go down to Home Depot or Lowe's, and I go in there with my pickup truck and I buy some fencing, boards, wood, and I put it in the back of my truck. At that point in time when I bought that, that is my personal property. It's called personal property. I own that. I may have bought that the way I got titled to it is maybe somebody gave me a bill of sale or receipt that said, hey, uh, Pat paid for this. Now I put it in the truck and I drive home. I dig a hole in the ground and I put the posts in the ground. My intention is that they're going to go in the ground and they're going to permanently stay there and maybe I go ahead and concrete them in or put a dry mix or something around it. And what it is is now the, that that uh, fencing material goes from being personal property to being real property. Okay, And when I sell the house, there's an expectation that that fence stays. In other words, I would not sell the house and ha if, if I was the buyer, have an expectation of looking out there and seeing a fence and saying, oh, by the way, I guess when they move out, they're going to take the fence with them. Okay, and there's an expectation that that stays. So what becomes important is these improvements become part of the real estate depending upon my intention, why I'm doing it, and how it's physically attached to the, pro to the ground. Is it permanent or is it something that's movable? If I put something outside in the backyard, such as a picnic table that I can pick up and move with me, or a gazebo that's portable, I can take it, that's personal property. If I take that same thing and I drill holes in the concrete and bolt it down, then it becomes real property. Okay, so that, just so you're aware of that. Okay, um, why is that important? Okay, you may say, why is, why is this stuff important? And let me see if I can give you an example. If you are a real estate agent and you are going to go out and list somebody's house for sale, 
In other words, they call you up on the phone. They say, excuse me, I would like to sell my house. And could you come out here and, you know, take a look at it and give me an idea what it would sell for, so on and so forth. Once you have gone out, done your homework, and show, you know, and they've decided to, you know, that they want to hire you to list their house, one of the things that you should be doing with the owner of the house is going around from room to room and taking a look in the room and for things that are obvious, for example, say to them, is there anything in this room that I see now that is you're going to take with you? Okay. For example, are the drapes staying in the house? Are the blinds staying in the house? Are the carpets staying on the floor? And you may say, why would I ask that? Because when people come in to buy the house and they look at it and there are drapes and blinds on the window, there's an expectation that they would normally, when they buy the house, they would get that with the house. If the owner decides that they want to take it with them, then they need to put that in the contract in the listing agreement, like drapes to stay or drapes to go with me, okay? What you don't want to do is show the house, the buyer looks at it and says, oh, this is great, you know, nice drapes. In fact, if you go out and pr price out things like drapes and blinds, you'll find out you can spend lots and lots of money for that. So they may say, hey, one of the reasons why I want to buy this house is it, got, it has really nice drapes or right, nice window treatment. I happen to notice that they're all Hunter Douglas, which is a fairly you know, popular name brand blind and turn around and say, you know, I want to buy this. And so they buy the house with the idea they're going to buy it. One of the reasons why is because it has these nice blinds. They go to move in. The day they go to move in, they find out it's all gone. Okay? And so what you need to do is specify within the contract what stays and what, re what goes. Another example is like when I sold my house a couple years ago, I had remodeled the kitchen. And one of the things I did when I remodeled the kitchen, I put all this brand-new cabinetry in it. And we, I put a place where I could slide a refrigerator in. And my wife and I talked back and forth about should we take the refrigerator or leave it or take it. And she kind of won, and we, we decided to take it with us. Now, that refrigerator was not permanently installed. It was basically to take that refrigerator out. You just walked over, grabbed a hold of the refrigerator, pulled it out. It came out on wheels and unplugged it, put it on a dolly, and took it with you. Okay. Now, when I got ready to sell the house, I made darn sure that I that I specifically stated in the contract that that refrigerator was to go with me, okay, so that somebody wouldn't come in here and go, where's the refrigerator? Okay, that's why we would do that. Okay, uh, what they want to do is they want to make sure that you're aware of the fact that when you transfer any personal property, okay, that you, get, you have what we commonly refer to as a bill of sale. When you think about it, if you buy a car, a car is a personal property. When you buy it, you get something called a bill of sale. Okay? That evidences the fact that you have paid a certain amount of money and exactly what you bought. Okay? So, for example, if I'm going to sell a home, and in addition to the home, I'm going to sell, say, for example, the refrigerator with the home, then in reality... When I transfer the house, I'm going to use a grant deed to transfer it, but that, that personal property I'm going to sell is going to have a bill of sale that goes with it, or I should have a bill of sale that evidences that it's not part of the property. Okay? All right. The next thing that we want to talk about is, is, um, is what is, you know, like when we're talking about property, is, is how, how do we distinguish between real and personal property? And um, 
they give you some rules here to follow, okay? And they basically say that fixtures are items of personal property that are attached to or incorporated into uh, into the land in such a way, manner as to become real property. The courts use five tests to determine if an item is a fixture. In other words, the method of attachment is the first one. How is it physically attached to the real estate? Is it temporarily installed or is it permanently installed? Okay, and you can think about a lot of different things like that. Like, for example, I may have something in the house, um, you know, like if I have a, 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 um, a shelf on the wall, typically that is permanently attached. It's bolted or screwed to the wall, okay? We're talking about permanently attaching it. That would be, that would be, we're talking about that. The second thing that we look at is adaptability. How do we, how, how can we use that? The third is the relationship of the parties. In other words, why we're doing it. Fourth is the intention. Why did we put it there? Did we put it there with the idea in mind it was going to be permanent? Like, is it a fence and we're putting it there with the idea in mind it's going to stay there? And then if we have an agreement. Okay? So, um, trying to see, okay. So the, the big bottom line here is that why we need to know this is we have to be able to distinguish between whether something is personal property or real property so that the client, when they buy the house and they get ready to move in, they're not going to find out that wh why they bought it, you know, drapes, refrigerator, whatever, that that's gone. And anything that is, the intention is that the owner is going to take with them that would be even considered to be possibly misunderstood to be real property or personal property you as the agent need to put that in the contract and say, drapes to go, drapes to stay, refrigerator to go. Whatever it happens to be, you need to put it in the contract so there's no misunderstanding. Okay? Okay, the next thing we want to do is talk about something called a legal description. You guys need to get more excited about this stuff. All right. Now... When you really think about this for a minute, when we talk about property and we're trying to identify where the property is located, what we're doing is we're giving it an address. Like, for example, if I give a property, if I say my house is located at 123 Main Street or 2795 Wentworth Road or 3514 Patterson Way, I'm giving a postal address of where that property is located. I am not telling you how big it is. I'm not telling you how deep it is. I'm not telling you the boundaries of the property. All I'm doing is telling you, giving you a postal address. That address, when I give it to you, is something that can be changed. Uh, it's not uncommon, for example, I think last night in a class I said, uh, you know, back in 1963 when President Kennedy was assassinated, after his assassination it seemed like we were naming everything, high schools after uh, Kennedy, streets after Kennedy, airports after Kennedy, you know, a lot of things were being renamed. It's not uncommon to have that happen. We can rename those things, okay? But consider the fact that this address that we have is called the common address. It doesn't give us any specific information about the property at all, none, zero. So what we need to do is that if we're going to buy a piece of property, you know, we need to know what is it that we have. We need to have a legal description that sets the boundaries, so we can look at it and say it's 100 feet wide, it's 200 feet deep, it angles this way, it angles that way. We need to know that. We need to know, for example, is, is there any easements on there? Does the utility company have the right to put a transformer on the property? Or does the TV 
company, cable company, have a right to put a box on there for cable TV? What is it that we have? So there's three types of legal descriptions. The first one, as it shows here, is called meets and bounds. The second one is called sections, townships. It's government survey. And the third is called lot, blocks, and tracks. Now, I'm going to start out with meets and bounds first. And I'm going to try to use an analogy a little bit. A meets and bounds description. And I'll show you on this side over here what they're talking about in the book. Here for a minute. A meets and bounds description is shown here is this. It's accompanied with a map. Okay, And I'm going to reference this so you see what it is. There's a road that's going along here. Okay, And it says that the, fen that the description, if you can imagine this, just think about the fact that you're driving along a road. Typically, you see this kind of a legal description in a rural area, like in a farm area. Typically, you'll see them in maybe something like El Dorado County, Placer County, somewhere out in the outlying area. This could be Jackson Highway for all we know. Okay. And what they'll do is they'll pick a point out. They'll say starting right here. That's what this does. It says starting the true point, beginning starting point, and it's saying that it's going to start at a fence post. Okay. Now let me kind of back up here a little bit. First of all, a lot of these legal descriptions that are like this possibly have been done in some cases years and years and years ago. And when they were done, as the book talks about, they were done through a survey. We had a land surveyor that went out and did it. And they would pick sort of common things that were easily identifiable. So they may say starting at the big tree, starting at the big rock, going to the river's edge. Okay. The problem is, is over the years, the tree fell down, so the point no longer exists. The wall fell over. You know, the river dried up. Okay. The rock was moved. Okay. All those things happened. So you're going to find out, and your major concern as a real estate agent is that if you're shown one of these legal descriptions, one of the things that you should be saying is, how accurate is this? When was the last time there was a surveyor out here uh, that surveyed this and confirmed that this is really true? Okay. Usually with a land survey, and when I'm talking about a land survey, if you drive along the highways a lot, especially in California, you see these people out here with a kind of like a transit, we call about it. It has a, like a, looks like a rifle scope on the end of it. And they're looking, and there's somebody out in the distance with a stick, and they're trying to figure out points of where things are located. That's a surveyor. Typically, what they do is when they do a land survey nowadays is they'll have a post or a pin. They locate that exact position. What they do then is they take that pin, and they drive it in the ground, and it's got a marker on it. And they're very, very accurate because what you're doing is you're actually saying, you know, that everything on the inside of this is is the person's property, and everything that's not in this is somebody else's. And why we're concerned about this is we want to know what is it that we own and what is it that we don't own. For example, if you're going to get ready to put a fence up around your house, it may not be a bad idea for you to go out there and find out where these markers are because you don't want to build the fence and find out that you're maybe putting the fence too much on your property and giving somebody else, you know, in other words, you're allowing people to encroach on your property. Okay? So you want to kind of know where this is. But anyway... This is like a set of directions on how to walk around my property. Okay? Another analogy you could use for this, and, I, and I'll try to draw on it, would be like, for example, if you're going to go to somebody's house. Nowadays, a lot of us will go to the computer system. We'll type in MapQuest. We'll say, okay, we live at 123 Main Street, and we want to go to Sacramento City College. 
And what will happen is it will give us a set of directionals. It will say starting at, you know, where your house is, turn right, go to the end of the street, make a left, go down to a certain street, make a right, make a left, and it will tell you all the directions to get there. Okay? This is the same thing. It's like a set of directions on how to walk around the perimeter of the property. So if you take a really careful look at this, what it is is it's starting at a point. It's telling you where that happens to be. It's a fence corner. It tells you the length between here and here. It gives you the direction. And remember that we're talking about in direction. Anytime we do directions, we're talking in relation to north, south, east, and west. Remember, a compass has 360 degrees. Okay? There's north. Then when we talk about east, it's 90 degrees. South is 180 degrees, the opposite way. 270 is over this way, west, and then there's north. Okay, so we have to do it. The other thing to keep in mind is that you always have to have a point on here where you're identifying where north is. So going back down to here, you're giving a direction. You're giving feet. and So you're saying if I put a tape measure between here to here to that point, to that fence corner, it's going to be 2,664 feet. That's where the property line is. In fact, if I was going to go out there and measure it, I may put a post down here. I may take a string or something and just be able to, you know, between it. And I would know then where my boundary is. I drive another stake in right here. Then this tells me the direction to go and how many feet. In this particular case, it looks to me like it's 1,302 feet. In that direction, I drive a second post in here. Next thing is I turn. I would turn right. I'd go in this direction. This is the bearing, 2,550 feet to that point. Drive another post, you know, and then finally walk over here. When I got all done, if I had walked around and I had a string that was strong enough, I would have actually put all the boundaries of the property in. At that point, I would know where to put the fence and what I actually own. That's a meets and bounds description. Meets and bounds. The second type of description is called a government survey. A government survey. And what you really have to think about in order for this to make sense, and there's three points in California where they do this, is that if you had a phone call today from somebody, you know, the President of the United States, and said, listen, I just acquired some property in the West, you know, the West part, we're going to call it the Western part of the United States. Now that we own the property, what we need to do is come up some way to be able to legal, you know, be able to describe where that property is located. And you'd probably think about it a lot, and you'd be talking about an overall system. Okay. Now the system that we're going to talk about, just so that you get a comprehension, is like going downtown Sacramento. We have a system with those streets downtown. If you think about it, when you go downtown, if I tell you that I'm going to meet you at the corner of Fourth and L Street you know that you're going to be standing there and you should see a sign, one, one will be L and one will be 4th, and we'll know exactly where we're located. If I tell you to meet me at uh, 15th and J, you would know where that is. It's called a grid system, grid. It's like a grid. Well, this system we're going to talk about here is a grid system. It's like as if we took a grid, you know, a bunch of square boxes and laid them over the, the map of the United States and then figured out where these places were located. Now, in California, we have three places where we do our measuring from. And the reason why we do that is because we have, you know, the, the state is fairly long. So we have one that's up here in the northern part of California. 
and I'm going to kind of zoom in. I'll just point them out, and then I'll zoom in. There's one up here in Humboldt County, one in, called Mount Diablo, and one called San Bernardino. So I'm going to zoom in here, first of all, so that we can see the Humboldt one. Humboldt is where it's up on the northern part of the coast, not that far from Oregon. Okay, notice that we have a, we have a Humboldt baseline. The only way I can help you think about what a baseline is, it'd be like if you're talking about camping. If you go camping, you say, listen, we're going to go hike Mount Everest. But what we're going to do first is we're going to have to have several different campsites that we go to, and we're going to have a base camp, a flat place where we're going to start. That's our base. And from there, we're going to go up. We're going to go up the mountain. So baseline means the base, the flat. On the other hand, vertically, we're talking about something called a meridian. Okay? So we can talk about property that's located either north of this baseline or south of the baseline or west of the meridian line or east of the meridian line. Okay? That's in Humboldt. The next one is some place, it's called the Mount Diablo baseline and meridian. That's the second place. Now, where is this located? Okay? If you get in your car or on your motorcycle, however you want to get there, and you go down Highway 80, go down Highway 80 like you're going towards San Francisco, and then when you get to Highway 680, you take Highway 680, you go down 680, and when you get to as far as Pleasanton, you're going to start to see signs from Mount Diablo. If you have a clear day in Sacramento, really clear day, I mean the rain has been through, the wind has blown everything out, it's clear as a bell, you look down towards that area, especially if you're standing on some hills up here, you'll see a mountain. That's Mount Diablo. In fact, uh, it's a place, it's a park, it's a state park. You can go visit there. Uh, but up at the top of the mountain, they have a pin in the ground, and that's the point. That's the measuring point where you take the measurements from. Okay, that's the, that's the point. So you could go down there and visit. You can look at that pin. You can, you know, take pictures of it, uh, whatever you like. In the southern part of the state, we have something called the San Bernardino baseline and meridian. Okay, so the concept you want to get here is that we have four, or I'm sorry, three locations within California where we would take our measurements from. Okay? Now, what it, this book tends to do now at this point, it starts to blow pictures up. It makes them bigger and bigger. Okay? And what we're going to be talking about is the picture that's located right in here. Right? And that's this one here. And what they're doing is they're taking this grid system. Okay, This here was this right here. So what we're doing is we're just blowing that up is what we're doing. So I'm going to turn this over. And right here, a couple things that I want you to notice. This is the San Bernardino baseline. Notice it's a thick line. It's darker than the other line. Notice that this is the meridian line right here. That's also a very dark line. A couple things I want you to know characteristically. First of all, notice they have a, an indicator over here that this go, goes in a northerly direction. So it's giving us a direction. Notice that what happens is, is that these look like little squares. You know, we have squares that go up here. And each one of these squares, the size of those squares is six miles by six miles. Six miles by six miles, or a total of 36 square miles. Okay. 
What I want you to notice is that when we talk about these things, if we're going north of this baseline, we name them. We name each one of these levels a tier. So this would be tier 1, this is tier 2, this is tier 3, this is tier 4, so on and so forth. And it would be tier 1 north. It's north of the baseline. If we were going down, it would be tier 1 south. Okay? Hopefully you get that. You know, it's either north or south of that baseline. So that describes we are able to tell people going up north or south, but it doesn't tell us in east or west. So in order for us to know east or west, we use something called a range. So if we're on this side of the base of the meridian line, this would be range 1 east, range 2 east, range 3 east, range 4 east. If it's to the west, it's range 1 east, range 2 east, range 3 east, range 4 east. A grid system, in other words. However you basically want to think about it, that's what's happening. Now, what they're doing here is they're taking this little figure that's right up here. And just so that you know, if I was going to legally describe this piece of land that's located right here, I would say that this plot of land, which is six miles by six miles, is a township, is tier four north, okay, range three east of the San Bernardino baseline and meridian. Okay, that's how I would describe that. If I was going to talk about this piece of property right here, I would say that this happens to be on tier two north, range one east of the San Bernardino baseline and meridian. That's how I describe it. Okay, think of it, uh, and it gets bigger as you go. You're going from small to big. Okay, it's kind of like your address at home. You don't say, I live on the world in the United States, in Sacramento, on this street. What I do is I say, I live on 123 Main Street, Sacramento, California, United States, on the world. So we go from small to big. Okay, same thing here. Now, what we're going to do in the next diagram is we're going to blow this up. Right here, this section. This is 36 miles by 36 miles. I'm sorry, 6 miles by 6 miles, total of 36 miles. So I'm going to blow this up, and that happens to be this grid, which is located right here. Okay? Okay, that's what was in there. Okay? That's this section. Right? Now, this section that's 36 miles by 36 miles has 36 of these. Each one of these sections is one mile square. So, in other words, the distance between here and here is one mile, between here and here is two miles, three miles, four miles, so on and so forth. Okay? The total distance between here and here is, one, is six miles, and between here and here is six miles. Another thing I want you to notice is how it's numbered. It starts over here. This is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. And notice it doesn't go back over here. What it does is it drops down to the next row. 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, then 13, 14, 15, 16, all the way down. Think of it like running like a snake. Okay, that's how the numbering system works. Now, if I was going to describe this piece of property right here, right there, which is one mile by one mile, I would say that that is... That is section one because there's 36 sections, right? 36 sections. I would say that's section one, okay? Section one of 
of the property that happens to be in, in, if you will, section one, okay, okay, section one, tier four north, range three east of the San Bernardino baseline and meridian, okay? So you're going from small to big, okay? Right? That's the concept behind it. It's a way for us to describe property. Uh, not that this is necessarily perfectly true, but if you fly, have flown in an airplane and you look out the window and you fly over some farm area, especially in California, you're going to see things look square and patterned. Okay? Sections. In fact, we talk about things like the North 40, the South 40, the East 40, the West 40, okay? Um, each one of these sections, each one of these sections is equal to 640 acres. So that means there's 640 acres here, okay, 640 acres here, 640 acres here, so on and so forth, okay? So each one of them is equivalent to 640 acres, right? Now, getting close to the end, but what this then does from here is that it takes one of these sections and it blows it up even further, and that's this. That's this section. That's the 640 acres, okay? So the distance between here and here is one mile, and the difference, distance between here and here is one mile, okay? This is 640 acres in total. That's what a section is, okay? And what happens here is that when you break this further down here, this is, this is considered to be the northwest quarter. So this is a quarter. It's like taking four and divide it into 640. So this happens to be 160 acres, okay, here. This block totally here is six, is, I mean, this is 160, this is 160, so on and so forth. What they're trying to do here, just so you see, this quarter is 160. If I was to split that in half, each half would be 80. Half of 160 is 80. This down here, this would be still totally 160, but a quarter of that is 40, 40, 40. And a quarter of that is 10, 10, and they keep breaking it down just so you know what it is. Okay? And like I said, we're getting close to the end, so I'm going to kind of probably pick up on that the next time to finish that off when we, uh, when we meet the next time. Uh, why is that important to you? Just so that you know, legal descriptions are something that especially, you know, you're used to the fact that if you're in a subdivision here locally in Sacramento, you're talking about a lot, what we'll talk about the next time. But you're out in a rural area. You're dealing with farmland or you're going to split land or whatever. You're dealing with a legal description. You're showing the property to your client. You have to be able to well, at least interpret that to know what you're talking about. Okay. If you don't know what you're talking about, you better need to find out what you're talking about. You don't want to stand there and point to something that you're going to try to sell the client and realize that you're pointing to the wrong piece of property. Okay. Very, very important that you know. Anyway, as I mentioned, we're close to the end. You should be going ahead and watching this show and show one uh, between now and the next time, and we'll see you back here for show number three. Thank you very much for coming.